There he goes. Scott's really good to see you again. Good to see you. Uh, you had a you had a question about uh, the five uh, pictures that you put on the end uh, the Skype where middle one is where everybody normally thinks of what enlightenment takes me everything. Okay. Mm. But that is actually a perception. Mm. I am one with everything. That's a thought. Right. It's actually being one with everything. It's, yeah. So um, this teaching of Pratika Samupada uh, is deeply, deeply related to the jhanas in the sense that in order to experience these items on uh, the mind must be in a state or condition that it can see that stuff directly rather than having it as a list of items that you would put down as an answer to some test or something. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's what's happened with much of Buddhism. Taking it as a subject of information and we treat it like any other school uh, topic. And we turn it into a conceptualization. So perceive and perceive and conceptualize Patija Samupada. And then we also perceive and conceptualize the jhanas. Mm -hmm. Where the reality is, is that the state of the jhana is when one is in that state, then that means that there are a particular place in the Patija Samupada. And so the first jhana would be the point where we are um, being able to actually control the feelings. Because we have sukha and piti in the first jhana, so we've already learned to control the feelings, and this is what we mean by wisdom at the contact. But the reality is, is that we've already started making some changes to the salayatana, that we're already beginning to perceive things differently because the uh, the Salyatana has that gladdening of the mind, the language that we use to brighten things up. Okay? And as we then progress through the jhanas, we get more and more intense at that point of feeling for the second jhana and then the third jhana. But when the fourth jhana comes, we start then looking at the deeper things that are there in the sense of the relationship between our actual sensory input and what we do with it. Okay. So the first three jhanas have to do with what we do with it. And then the fourth jhana has various aspects that help us figure out how to stop doing what we are doing. Now, in the beginning, for an ordinary person, the things that we are doing wind us up ignorantly in Tanha, Upadana, um, uh, Baba, Jati, and Dukkha. So those things happen when we are uh, in the ordinary state, but when we're in the first jhana, that means that we can guard enough of that sensory, uh, let us say sensory output, talking about sensory input, the sensory output is actually the salayatana or the sense that we make out of things. 
Now, this is actually quite confusing for a lot of students. And so let's get that a little bit cleared up. And I'll use the word seeing like I see with the eyes, which means that colors, shapes, forms, and movements come in through the eyes. But then I can say something like, I see a tree, or even more specifically, I see what you mean. Now, I see what you mean means that now, uh, hopefully, our uh, conceptualized language is in sync, because I actually see, or I perceive, or I have the same um, concept that you do. So I see what you mean. We're engaged or in line with each other, and that's at the point of Salayatana. So actually, we have two different kinds of consciousness. We have the raw input consciousness and then the processed consciousness. Okay. The processed consciousness, then, think about it like a hard drive that has been partitioned so you know the size of it. But there's two different states that a partition can be in. One is raw and the other one is formatted. Mm -hmm. And if it is formatted, that means that now we can use it to store data. Okay, so what we're actually doing here with this uh, concept, this concept language, is to remove the formatting and leave the drive raw. It's empty, which means that we don't hang on or store or cling to any of the sensory input. We just allow it to come. Now, in continuing with the data processing concept, that if you've got a program that is processing the data, now in the old, old equipment before computers came along, they had things called unit record equipment that did all the accounting work. Uh, the unit record equipment, uh, a, a unit record, by the way, is a punched card, a holler is punched card. Perhaps you've seen them. They're in the archives. Sometimes they're in. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. In fact, the Hollerith punch card was the actual size of the um, the greenback dollar of the 1890s. The dollars that we have now are a little bit smaller, but the right. greenback dollar was the format for the Hollerith card. The point that I'm making is is that the data is punched as punched holes in the card. Right. When the card goes into the machine, as it's being inputted, uh, various uh, uh, because of the cycling, that when when the card has a hole in it, there's a contact made. That contact may be uh, hardwired through a uh, through a punch board that looks very similar to the old. You've seen um, uh, telephone systems where the operator is saying, may I have your number, please? And then she'll take a cord and she'll plug it into various places to make the contacts, okay? So we have that with the punch cards so that when that punch card hole has a contact, that can either go to an adder or it can go to a printer printhead. But the timing of it has to do then with when that um, bail is set up and stopped so that at the end of the cycle, all of the bales are in the row, and then the hammers come and go a big whack, and that'll print a line. Okay, 
So the point that I'm making is, is that those kind of machines did very, very little processing. So the speed of the input card is the processing speed. The machine has to be that way so that by the time the card is read, it's either calculated or printed. Right? If it's a calculation, then it has to run through another print cycle to get the bale set up for the numbers. That's why it will sound like a chung because the first ka is the setting up of the alphabet and then the chung is when the, the, the numbers are set up. Okay, very little processing. Now in modern computers, we have it set up so that a uh, piece of information is either taken off of a, a CD or off of a flash drive or off of a hard drive or off of the internet. And then that data has to be processed has to be calculated up and then later it's got to be set up for a printer because modern printers don't have that very simplicity now they have to calculate which dot is going to be printed and all of that kind of stuff and so what that means is is that the ability for the computer to read data at full speed is hindered by the processing of the data so you read and you process, you read and you process it, you read and you process. This is the way that the human mind is going. Okay, so what we're now learning to do is do more reading and less processing. Mm. And as we are doing uh, more reading and less processing, that means that the amount of information that can come in becomes huge that while we're looking to, for understanding, we'll pinpoint something, we'll listen to it. For, we talked about the sound a moment ago. If I have the sound and identify that as the oboe, while I'm doing that, I'm going to be missing everything else the orchestra is doing right then in that second. Because now I've got oboe on my mind rather than the sound right. of the orchestra on my mind. Right. Okay, so this that, is the yeah. whole idea. The whole idea of it then is, is that we can either gain data and then process it. We can either process it wisely or process it ignorantly. But what we're learning to do is to see that processing and then beginning to bring it to a halt so that we allow just raw data input. Okay, so that means that we have very, very little saliatina and a whole lot of um, uh, venia, which is actually, um, these are the two kinds of consciousness. Philosophers and psychologists, they look at consciousness as that which we perceive. The Buddha is saying, no, consciousness is the ability to take in input not the ability to process it for understanding. Hmm. But there's that stages in there from the, uh, the input through the processing. Now the processing requires old data. That's where the salayatana comes in for ordinary people. Go ahead. Wait, can you clarify? So the Buddha defines consciousness as the processing or the input? The input itself, the ability the to take, mm -hmm. that's why they call it eye consciousness, because it's the right. data that comes into the eye, or right. ear consciousness or sound consciousness because uh -huh. of the data that comes into the ear. 
uh-huh. or the touch consciousness because of the data that comes into and contacts the body. Okay. All right. So that is the real consciousness that the Buddha talks about. And then after it's processed, that's the uh, the kind of consciousness uh, that we say, oh, I see what you mean. That is a kind of consciousness, mm-hmm. but it is manufactured inside the human existence. Mm-hmm. To where real consciousness is the consciousness that comes in through the sensory system. Right, because I, I was kind of confused about um, consciousness because I came from Advaita, an Advaita tradition, or like I mainly studied that or practiced like non-dual uh, Hindu type of uh, traditions where consciousness is the awareness of the input. So that's the way it's seen is that um it's the receiver of input is that's consciousness and it's some kind of permanent ground so there's kind of like a self identification with that but that's all the way down the road as we're talking about of the dependent origination Mm -hmm. um that now that, that the self is constructed it identifies as something some kind of awareness all right, let's use this example. The example is, is that an apple tree is ripe with apples and apples are falling. Okay, so that's the conceptualized setup. Okay, as the observer sees the object falling, that's all there is. But what humans do with that, and they will say, oh, that is an apple that fell and I want that apple. So we actually go and pick up that apple and put it into our basket and claim it to be mine. Okay, that's the whole process of the teacher Samuel Potter right there. This is my apple, right? That's where the selfishness comes in. And it came in because we wanted the apple, because we liked the apple, because we recognized that it was an apple that fell. So if we back up to the point of just seeing it, and I use the word it now because it's unidentified yet, when we see just falling, we see it fall, and that's all there is to it. That means then that we can continue to look and see other fruit trees with other apples falling, and we can see I saw that. Also, I saw falling, I saw falling, I saw falling, I saw falling. And that's all that there is, except that the I saw falling. We could better just say seeing, 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 seeing. And that's all there is. If we say falling, then that's actually a kind of perception. And then apple falling is more perception more of uh, salayatana and that when the apple and we recognize that it's an apple that fell that's what contact us not just seeing 
So we now say, I see an apple falling, and that is what contacts us. And so that's where the feeling comes from. I like apples. I want that apple that fell. Okay, so this is now the progression of Petitia Samapada. But if we can leave it at just seeing, just seeing, then that means that we brought an end to perception and feelings. There's nothing to feel because we're not perceiving anything. We're not being contacted in any way. We're just seeing. So at that level, that would be that first, fifth one. Okay, so that middle one of make me one with everything means that I perceive everything including me, and I am a part of everything that still mm. has that self right. in it, perception. Right. But it's a major, major step forward. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Because that Better first picture it. is where most people are. Yeah. <laughs> that first picture is where we, uh, in the picture, the guy uh, standing there sees a bird but now right. he's got to process it as bird. He's got to process it as sound. I hear the bird sing. And that's why there is separation. I am here and the bird is there. Mm -hmm. But if we just hear a sound without even identifying it as a bird, because if we identify it as a bird, then we might want the bird. If we just hear it as a sound, then that's leaving it at that level of um, Sanya, excuse me, of uh, Vinya, and not going to the Salayatana, not going as far as I know what that is. Now, this is an important thing about the idea that we can, in fact, receive so much more input if we're not processing the input that we do receive. Now, it's strange. This is where we get the idea of a flood. Mm -hmm. Now, flood it's strange. Is, is like these. Go ahead. It's uh, I know the experience you're talking about, and it's it's such a weird, like, subtlety that how could you possibly intend to experience like that? Because already you've processed it if you're trying to experience it. <laughs> so it's a weird thing. Like it's so weird. But you can't, but somehow it happens, but I, it's, it's like, it's hard to make sense of it because you, it's hard to practice it, it I guess. Actually, gonna... another way of saying it is, is that it requires a skill and that skill. skill is what we're developing and we're developing several skills that help us to do that and right. without skills. Um, just like sawing wood, you've got a piece of wood and you've got a, a saw and you may be able to saw that piece of wood, but you can't make furniture out of that because you don't have the skills of measuring. You don't have the skills of uh, seeing any of the stuff uh, about what's going on. And so this is where we need to build the skills. And, it, and the important way to look at this is, is that most of the skills that we need to be able to do this are the skills of first jhana. Mm, right. 
the skills that we need are built in First Jhana, and that the important skill is not that we can momentarily pay attention to the sensory input. It's that can we persist with that a while? So the ability to sustain the fourth jhana is, is the same skill that we're developing of being able to sustain wholesome thoughts in the first jhana. If we can think of and have one wholesome thought after another wholesome thought after another wholesome thought, then we can begin to put some gaps in there. But when we is do there, put gaps in there, there's still a whole lot of feeling left. Is there, um, is, is the first four jhanas uh, sufficient or do you need, or should, is it better to like develop the skill of uh, going past the fourth jhana to the formless jhanas? You no, don't no, need no, to do that. No, 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 no. Now you're getting way off of stuff. Um, I'm not, in fact, we could call that part of it the Hinduism that was added to Buddhism. Oh, uh, so you don't teach those at all. No, okay. no. What we talk instead is, is that there are really only four jhanas. And the question is, if you can get into the fourth jhana and sustain it, what are you going to do with it? Oh. Okay. But in fact, in some suttas, if you um, um, uh, list it that way, then you could say that there are nine jhanas. Okay. Okay, you've probably heard these things before. One would be infinite. Oh gosh, I've got to have that. Word yeah, yeah, there. infinite consciousness, but, infinite but space. And... Right. Guess what? Let's let's start it first at that point. In the time of the Buddha, there was no concept of infinite. It mm -hmm. did not exist. That infinite, in fact, is a mathematical concept. Mm. And the reality is, is things just keep going on and on and on, and there's no end to it. But uh, infinite is a concept that does not really exist. There is nothing in the universe aside from uh, mathematics. There is nothing in the universe that is actually infinite. Everything is finite. The amount of energy in the universe is finite. The age of the universe is finite. The number of stars in the universe is finite. The size of the universe is finite. The number of grains of sand on the beach is vast and uncountable, but not infinite. Yeah. If the grains of sand upon the beaches was infinite, then not only would the earth uh, and there would be no room for water because it would be all sand. There would be no room for the space between Jupiter and Mars because it would be all sand. The whole universe would be nothing but sand, and even the universe itself is not big enough to have all the sand that would be an infinite amount of sand. It's, an, it's a concept that does not exist in reality. Now, Bhikkhu Bodhi should have understood that much about mathematics when he chose the word infinite, because the real word that we're looking for is the word boundless. Boundless, yes. I boundless. Heard that. 
okay? Because this is really what's going on. When we talk about infinite space, what we're talking about really is where is the boundary between your skin and the air? Is there actually a boundary there? The answer is upon close inspection, there is no boundary, not a, a hard fixed boundary. Ordinary people think there are, but then what about the hair on your arm? Does the hair on your arm go into the air? Does the hair on your arm go into your arm? Then where's the end of you and where's the end of the hair and where does the air begin? The answer to that is some of that air is already inside the skin anyway. There is no real cut hard boundary there. No boundaries. That we are a part of it. That in fact, when you're breathing, where is the boundary between the air and the body? Because the body is being is breathing in and out is part of the air. And so this idea of infinite space means the space that we're in has no real boundaries to it. Now, the boundaries of consciousness, though, is the boundary between um, the actual sense of input and your perceiving. We stopped the bound. We put a boundary in there because we stopped taking data long enough to try to figure out what it was that we saw. Okay, and so one of the uh, we've covered two of them now. One is infinite space and infinite consciousness, which is basically just bound. The boundaries don't exist. There really are no boundaries. When we come to understand there are no boundaries, that's when the uh, the Dalai Lama becomes one with everything because he's removed the boundaries. That is an element of the fourth jhana. And we could sit and muse and, and see that temporarily, momentarily. Right. Okay. So these are like elements of the fourth jhana. That, mm -hmm. okay. These are aspects. Yeah. Okay. That makes more sense to me. So, because like I've experienced, because like I was expecting it to be like an, the fourth, another fourth jhana, just how like first jhana is like first jhana and second jhana is like second jhana. And then third jhana is like third jhana, fourth jhana is like fourth jhana. But then these other like boundlessness and stuff, it's kind of just like a temporary little, it's like a thing, but like it comes out of the equanimity or the, the when, total when equanimity. The, right. When the mind yeah. is sharp and, right. and uh, stable, right. then we can hear those things like the sound we can hear the sound of the whole orchestra right. we could not possibly reproduce it in our head but we can hear it all right. okay but if we start labeling it oh that's an oboe and that's a french horn and that's a uh, uh a violin we are now really limiting what the sensory input when we hear the violin and identify it as a violin, we're not listening to the bass. That's the whole point is, is that we have selective perception. And by selecting out the input that we're using, that, that limits us because of our selection process. And something you said, um, going back to 
Vatucha Samapada. Something you said in last night's Sangha made so if you can catch things at the point of liking them. So before it becomes craving, just I like this. I why do I like this? Um you can kind of stop it in its tracks, right? You can stop it mm-hmm. like because the Exactly so, because when you're asking that question, why do I like it? You're actually now doing a bit of investigation of your perceptional system. Right, your perceptional system. Mm -hmm. And the perceptional system has that past in it. I like it because I am used to that. It's familiar to me. That we like things because they are uh, familiar to us. But that's like a that's like a conceptual frame of it. But I'm talking about seeing like the experience of liking something, like seeing the mechanism of I like this, and like seeing it, and you're like, what is that? Uh, rather than going into the past of like, why do I like this? Just like seeing the mechanism of liking something and like catching it there, and then you could see that it's another. It's just the sensation. That's like mm-hmm. not, it's like, it's another input. Like even the liking something is like a information before you process yes. it into more stuff. Right? Precisely so, exactly. Um, the sequence of events that are listed in the 12 steps of dependent origination. Uh, it seems very complicated to people until they realize really what's going on. And when they do that, they'll say, wait a minute. The water of Paticca Samapada does not flow completely straight down, that there are eddies and circles and uh, uh, things in there that make things kind of move around. That yes, once you see um, that you like it, that's a new uh, a new consciousness that brings up a new perception. But mm. if we don't do that, then if we just like it ignorantly and are not doing that extra processing, not forming that eddy to see what's going on, then that feeling of liking right. will go immediately into yeah. I want it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and so, um, Going back to that point about the various parts of it now is that we've looked at two of them. Another one to look at is the one that's called neither perception nor non-perception. This is actually beginning to understand the boundary between perception and consciousness. In other words, you have to have a little bit of perception to perceive consciousness itself. You can't have zero because if there is zero perception, then we're not actually receiving the data as strict input. So there's a very tiny, tiny little bit of perception in there. And in the Vasudhi Maga, they give the example of that as a clay bowl that like an, uh, an oil lamp, but a clay bowl that has had oil in it and you've drained all the oil out. Even though there is no oil that you can, um, let us say, remove, you can actually take a cloth and and work around the bowl and get that cloth oily a little bit. 
You could do that over and over again, and pretty soon there's very little or no oil coming off of the inside of the bowl as oil onto the cloth, but you still know that there is oil in the bowl. Mm -hmm. the, the oil is there inside the bowl, inside mixed with the clay itself. There is no way to get the all, all of the oil back out of the bowl. That some of the oil stays in the bowl. Okay, so in that regard, that means that we need just a tiny little bit of perception in order to be able to uh, receive data consciously. This is a state of nothing, of uh, neither perception or non perception, but that can go a little bit further in the sense of when there is no uh, perception at all, then the consciousness. And the sensory input doesn't happen very well at all. And this is what we mean by the state of nothingness. There is nothing there because the consciousness is not having enough perception to even be able to perceive the consciousness. So these are the some of the items on that list of infinite space, infinite consciousness, when we know that it's not infinite, it's just the boundaries are getting loose. So the boundary between consciousness and perception is a very, very interesting place. This when when the mind is really, really sharp, you can begin to see that there is that boundary between the perception and we're going to begin to remove that boundary so that we can just see the sensory input. Okay, when we can bring the uh, perception to an end. That means that there is no saliatana to impact us to give feelings. This is then of the state of um, uh, equanimity or upeka is the state of nothingness because there's no feelings left. There's no feelings left because there is no perception left. And all there is is just raw input of data. Just raw input. So we're not taking what that input is, the reality, the rupa, and naming it mm -hmm. or bringing it to a state of understanding. We're doing less and less of that. And when there is no perception left, there is no naming left, then there is no contact left. And when there is no contact left, there is nothing to rise feelings. And so the feelings go into a state of, uh, not not really there. And that this in the sutra number 111 in the one by one as they occur, this is where Buddha and Sariputta recognize that's the end of the practice. There's nothing left yeah. to um, uh, the business of the Dhamma or anything else when we can bring our feelings to a stop and we bring the feelings to a stop by bringing perception to a stop. That there's nothing left. There's nothing. That's it. That's it. That, that's as far <laughs> as we can go. It's kind of cool. <laughs> mm -hmm. But it's still temporary. No one stays in right? that state. Yeah, definitely. It's temporary. No one stays in that state. Yeah. It, everything is then temporary, but when you come back out, you come back with a kind of with the sense of relief. Wow, that's just all there is to it. Yeah. <laughs>
<laughs> but that sense of relief is, is only happening when it starts back up because you have now seen it right to the very end. The only thing that's even more peaceful than that is death itself. Yeah, just dying. It'll happen eventually. <laughs> mm -hmm. So this is what they uh, uh, are talking about. And that picture that you had, um, those five things actually are, uh, it looks very, very Zen. The way that it's mm. done with the Zen drawing and all of that kind of stuff. And and many of the Theravadals will, will say, well, wait a minute, Zen is missing so much of the data. It's missing. I mean, they didn't even have the suttas. But this right. picture shows, yes, they do understand. These pictures are no, actually a pictorial a representation of the fourth jhana. I don't think those pictures come from a Zen person it's not from zen i think it like stylistically it might look like that but it's oh, i think okay. that's yeah it's uh it's about i think it's about this it's uh it's more theravada if anything um i, I don't know if I'm not... those pictures they actually knew what they were doing though yeah, yeah, yeah that's yeah. brilliant sure. i have not seen yeah. those pictures before but when i did i say that's that's it yes yeah, someone, a picture uh, for a thousand words. Here I spent 37 minutes or 40 minutes talking about it with all of these words and those five it's photos. It's a good picture. <laughs> it's, a, it's a good picture. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I got it from another um, pretty popular Dhamma practitioner who um, uh, he, uh, he was a uh, he was influenced by Daniel Ingram, and then mm -hmm. he went through all the path attainments. And uh, he he makes a lot of videos and like has a lot of good stuff out there. And he like shared that, so it was a pretty good find indeed. Well, the the Western mentality is that this stuff is really really hard to do. Mm-hmm. But the reality is, is that no, it's just a matter of skills and very right. few people develop the skills that they right. need to do. But these skills are available to anyone. If they practice these skills, they would be able to take the mind into these states. Yes. But then it's all temporary. That the one that we want to really practice and stay with and put a lot of time in, not just uh, putting a lot of time in practicing, trying to do it, but spending a lot of time in first jhana. To be able to apply the mind and sustain the mind and apply the mind and sustain the mind in the wholesome. Because that's what calms you down. Calms you, mm -hmm. starts to like calm you down enough to see to see clearly, to see better. Yeah, see clear. okay. yeah. And as we do that, and as we get more and more calm, we begin to calm the mind down to where the actual thoughts stop. But we talk about, there's a problem with the word thought. This is why I tend to go into the idea of a mind moment. How do you spend the mind moment? Because a mind moment can be spent in discursive thought. 
It can be spent as an argument. It can also be spent as observation. And then when we are spending our time in observation only, that's the fourth jhana. Mm -hmm. And everybody moves in and out of this, just like the, anyone of uh, the first jhana would be described as being able to read. Most people right. say they can read, and when they find something interesting to read, they'll start reading. But after the first paragraph or so, they're spending more time thinking about what they just read than the further reading. And so now the eyes are following along with the words, but we're not picking up that data. We're remembering right. and talking to ourselves about what used to be there. And so the first John is being able to read and read and read. And at the end of the sentence, you know that you got that sentence. At the end of the paragraph, you know you got that paragraph. Okay. Yeah, th this is why the uh, uh, listening to you and like the way you talk about it. Uh, before then, the jhana was like some kind of mystical, like experience, like idea of a mystical experience. And yeah, it's like that's probably how most people see it. It's like some sort of mystical. Uh, but they're not yeah. even taking that mystical experience apart. It's almost when we say mystical experience. That means that we cannot dissect that either. Mm. Mm -hmm. Okay, that is that this is where religion comes in. That is in, indescribable right. because we haven't done the evaluation yet. You just give, you just say, oh, it's God. <laughs> yeah, it's God. Or it's, <laughs> it's a miracle, or or yeah. it, it's this or something like like that. And and that's what makes it magical for most people. Yeah. Yeah other than a, a level of skill. The same exact same thing is done with prestidigitation or magic tricks. That you What's have to be able to practice what you're doing over and over right. again so that you can get your hands just right. So that, that, for instance, the example would be of doing something with bottle caps. And you have to... Uh, uh, kind of convince the person that you that's with you that you've only got one bottle cap because you're holding the other bottle cap in your hand like this with your finger. And so you can put that uh, one bottle cap on the top of the hand and then turn the hand over and that bottle cap lands on the tip of the finger because it was actually glued to the one that was inside and you bring that up while you catch the one in the air in your hand here and they think that the bottle cap was able to magically land on the tip of your finger when in fact it was glued. <laughs> it was already glued there. <laughs> okay, yeah. so um, <clears throat> we begin to realize then that everything is real. Mm. That just because we didn't see what happened didn't mean that it was magical. Right, okay. Seeing through prestidigitation is, in fact, one of the uh, remarkable awakenings that we have. And then we can recognize, oh, it's not magic, it's a skill. Mm. It's a skill that we develop. All of these magic tricks with all of these cards are simply because the guy just spent a lot of time with cards. Flipping them and turning them and, and buying, uh, let us say, uh, 52 packs of cards so he can get 52 seven of hearts. So he can play seven of heart tricks, but he's got a whole deck of cards, but there's nothing but seven of hearts in there. 
And so when he spreads that deck out in front of somebody, it's actually a different deck that he's showing them. And then he takes that deck and say, okay, this has got all the 52 cards. There's no magic here. And then he puts that deck down and picks up the deck and you don't see him do that. And this deck has only got 52 seven of hearts in it. And so naturally he can shuffle and plittle and do all kinds of things and tap and say, okay, you choose the card and here it comes seven of hearts. How can that possibly be? <laughs> the answer to that is because you pulled it out of a deck that only had seven of hearts in it. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. That's the magic trick that we have. And we have to recognize that, that, there is no real magic. Yeah, there, is only, there is only, um, uh, let us say, lack of perception. We didn't see what happened. And so now we're going to take that as information to recognize we need to look really closely. We need to see what's really going on inside the mind because the mind doesn't come up with magical seven of hearts either that we rigged our own deck and we didn't yeah. even know we'd rigged our own deck. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, I like this. And then it turns out bad. I'm like, oh, why am I suffering now? Well, yeah, why am I suffering? Right, I am. <laughs> <laughs> and the answer is we don't have the skills to see what we did. And so the whole teaching of Paticca Samapada, the whole teaching of Anapanasati is to teach us to really look at what we're doing so that we wind up not being confused, that we could see what's going on, that we see that our feelings come from our perceptions. They don't come from any place else. And they come, normally the feelings come from not perceiving things the way that they really are. that we've added something to it out of our past. And so how we begin to practice is by getting to control your feelings. If you can control the feelings, then you can begin to feel the way that you want to. This is first jhana, is to being able to control the feelings because if you can see that you can control the feelings, then you can unravel the mechanism that brings about these feelings. That's the perception. How do we perceive things is the base of our feelings, not what really happened. Wow. All I can say is wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's exactly what those five um, images are pointing out. Yeah. And there is a stage where we have to be at one with the universe. I actually recommend that. Why? Because that means that we're spending a lot of time in sensory input. We're taking in data. We're, the only confusion we're having is that there is a me there that's taking in data. Mm. Or we could come to that conclusion yeah. also and recognize, no, it's just data. Yeah. I'm part and of I the data if there's a me. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and especially the when you're really, really deep in dukkha, the witness stage is kind of like a like a nice little like life raft to hold on to. Like, oh, I'm not my dukkha. I'm the awareness of the dukkha. So it's kind of like a witness stage where it's like, but that's not even close to even 
the being one with everything, which is, uh -huh. a, yeah. But that's why this is a sequence of events. Yeah, yeah, you yeah, have yeah. to go through those skill developments. Yeah. And as we develop the skills, we can recognize that there is only consciousness. There is uh, no self in that consciousness, nor uh, even the idea that I am at one with the universe, that's still a conceptualized perspective, rather than just merely being in sensory input. And even the consciousness is impermanent too. Everything right. is temporary. Everything yeah. is impermanent. Nothing stays the same. Right, and that, that's the problem. I think some, uh, in some non-dual insight or traditions, you may get to, you get to everything is consciousness, but now you latch on to consciousness. Now you see, con you take ownership of consciousness, and then that leads to dukkha. And then people wonder why, like, it, and then now you're in a state of denial about, not having any dukkha because you've seen that everything is consciousness. But the only problem is that you're attached to the consciousness. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so the answer to that will never mind, start again. Right. Just keep coming back to it. No, it's beautiful. It's been a good talk. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really pleased with uh, your progress, Scott. I'm I'm pleased. I get I can't thank you enough. <laughs> I can't thank you enough. And the and all the teachers before you and the Buddha, the whole right. yeah. Gratitude, that's good stuff. <laughs> mm -hmm. Feeling Warms like you it. up. Yeah. All right, Scott. Well, we'll see you later. This has been a great right. talk. I've really enjoyed this. All right. See ya. <laughs>